Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have as my guest Kevin Beals, who is CEO and founder of Refract, who are recently acquired by Allego. Kevin, welcome. Thanks, Marcus. Great to be here. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Well, be careful what you wish for. So would you mind giving the audience 60 seconds on your career so far? Thanks, Marcus. Yeah, I will do. So I'm a a sales leader, I guess, by profession, worked for a couple of uh, early stage SaaS uh, uh, businesses and went through that growth journey, did some of my uh, learning there, started my own SaaS business uh, about 15 years ago. That got, uh, again, went through a a lot of lessons, did most things wrong, but enough things right to uh, have a a reasonably successful outcome and that uh, business was acquired before I started uh, uh, Refract, which is uh, now just over six years ago. As I say, try to not make a lot of the same mistakes uh, again. I'm sure still made many, but um, started Refract really by virtue of uh, the challenges that we'd seen in our our previous businesses, which was how do you coach and uh, improve the performance of of sales reps on calls, on demos, without sitting alongside someone looking at two different sides of the mountain, without doing ride-alongs and jumping in as it was in those days. And that's where we imagined Refract to, to capture those calls and conversations. And um, as you say, yeah, we're then acquired by Allego in December and um, yeah, excited by this next stage in our journey. Excellent. Okay. Well, look, there, there are so many things I'd like to unpack in that. And we've got a lot to cover today. So what was your best mistake in your previous company? The best mistake, without doubt, was that we tried to be everything to everyone. We would build the solutions that people wanted. We were kind of tried to be a SaaS business, but customized everything. Really made like kind of every mistake in the uh, in the playbook of uh, you know, how to build a, a great SaaS business. So the the uh, industry that we we're in was uh, was online exams. The company was called the Test Factory, and um, we had some amazing clients. Most of the exam boards, United Nations, Microsoft. But big enterprise organizations with very exacting needs. And you know, we succumbed to those exacting needs and created a very, very difficult business to truly scale. Excellent. Okay. So focus on something rather than trying to be all things to all men. I think it was, yeah, I think, you know, particularly from a sales perspective, it is like it is one, it's focus. But it's to working out how you are going to build and grow a great business rather than just capture every opportunity that comes along. And, you know, I'm, I'm saying this squirming in my feet, Marcus, uh, in my seat, uh, Marcus, uh, just uh, recounting some of those uh, errors and, you know, how uh, how ridiculous it, uh, you know, it seems now sitting here just talking about them and how obvious it seems. But particularly when growing a business, you know, it, it is, you, you're, so anxious to succeed, so anxious to do well, as we all are in, you know, in our sales teams and sales careers as well, but not winning the wrong kind of business and not building the kind of business that you can truly scale both for your team, for yourself and for your customers is, yeah, is definitely a lesson hard learned. I think there are a few things to unpack from there. First of all, learn to prioritize learn what you say no to matters often more than what you say yes to. And remember that 
you have to grow your business. You're no good to anyone uh, if you're spending all of your time putting out fires that you've created because you're trying to people please, because uh, you don't know how to establish clear boundaries. And um, you know, Pareto's law tends to apply uh, where 80% of the problems probably came from 20% of those bad decisions that you made. And 50% of those came from the square root of that your customer base. So there would have been you know, four or 5% of them that would have created more than half of those problems. And learning to recognize when you are going to trigger one of those fires would have saved you a hell of a lot of time, effort, money, and blood, sweat, tears, and sleepless nights. Is that fair? That is definitely fair. There's one bit I'll push back on in a second, but yeah, there is definitely a uh, an element of, of looking short-term and being short-term and kind of being driven to succeed. I know you've talked on some of your other podcasts about that kind of investor culture of uh, you know of, of, of creating shareholder value rather than uh, creating a, a great business. And if if honest, I think you know there there was a degree of that in my previous business. So this just to be clear for the audience is not reflect. This is uh, the, the business where I I made certainly far more of those uh, mis- uh, mistakes first uh, uh, time round. I think one thing though that I will push back on, and I don't want to contradict myself here, but Throughout my career, sometimes the very most challenging customers are the very best customers, especially in an early stage SaaS business. So there's there's the wrong kind of customers. There's the, you know the customers that you just perhaps you always knew were not necessarily the right kind of customers as you know someone that you would make successful, someone that would drive the uh, the ability to to go forward as a as a business and that that right ideal customer but then there are difficult customers and sometimes difficult customers challenging customers are the very most valuable because they push you in ways that you're not pushing yourself we're in violent agreement i believe that our job in business is to find those customers and be partners with them and that does mean that we have to do difficult work together it does mean that we have to sometimes fight and end up in constructive conflict. It does mean that we have to take on stuff that makes us stretch. So you're not going to find any pushback there. I think one of my favorite quotes of late comes from my friend Bernard Hornung, which is the conduct and behavior of the money behind you will permeate into the business. Now, if we're talking about the investors, then I think investors need to understand that if you are going to create a customer-centric business where you create buyer safety, where you're creating long-term partnerships with your customers, then they need to be patient. And the emphasis is not on just revenue growth at all costs. It's about creating the right kind of environment so that you can work long-term with customers and generate real lifetime value for both sides. And if you have partners, you have to factor them in as well. And sometimes it's the grit in the oyster that makes all the difference to turn uh, the business into a pearl. So let's focus a little bit on uh, the experience that you've had now that you've been acquired, because I'm really curious to find, because you said that you've gone from 23 to 42 people in the space of one trimester. That's a hell of a lot of growth. And I'm guessing the business that you entered into the relationship with is no longer the same business that you're in now. 
and it won't be in six months' time. It actually is. So as I guess a brief unpacking of 2020 for, for Refract, which undoubtedly was the biggest year of, uh, of change, obviously, in, in, in so many of our careers, but certainly for, for Refract. We came into 2020 feeling like we, it was, we finally had the wheels fully turning. The momentum was where we, we hit the start of the year with this, uh, with this really great momentum and um, you know, really excited, obviously, about what we would achieve last year. Then we obviously hit March and April. We had a lot of customers who were in events and recruitment and media and advertising who were furloughing staff and there was a month or two of panic, obviously, as uh, you know, as, as many of those listening would have been gone through exactly all of those emotions in a few weeks, some difficult conversations. But our sales were stayed, uh, our new business sales stayed really uh, uh, strong. And actually, once we then got into May and June and July, every month was a record month. Every month was a record month in terms of our clients growing. Every month was a record month in terms of our, our new business. And, and we realized that you know, suddenly the changes in the world had given us a, a tailwind on top of great momentum. We ended up just over doubling our revenue last year in spite of, of, of actually losing or pausing almost a third of our revenue in March and April. So we had this amazing this amazing tailwind, as I say, some, some was natural momentum, some was the changes in the world that were really favorable uh, to us of uh, you know, virtual selling of remote and so on. So we came to the end of last year and we had a lot of options at that point in time. We could you know, really double down and, uh, and, and grow the business. We could take on uh, some exciting levels of investment. Or we had the opportunity with the Lego, who we'd been partnering with for just over 12 months. And you know, we, we started to get really excited about imagining what we could achieve together. I guess in answer to your question there, and just you know, giving them maybe a little bit of context is we've been, I don't want to use the word rocket ship, but we were, you know, we were certainly going through some extremely fast growth, which has just naturally continued. Really, the the benefits and the changes from being acquired are yet to be unlocked. They're you know they're down the road. We're putting in the the, the foundations and the groundwork for that. We've grown our revenue over fifty percent since we were acquired in December, on the back of you know of what we achieved last year. This is just you know a, a natural momentum in our market as well. It's you know it's definitely not just refract in our market in the in the world around us that is is fueling that and growing the teams from 23 to 42 in that in that time as you can imagine you know it's a lot of change it's a lot of it's a lot of recruiting it's a lot of onboarding but actually that doesn't have that immediate impact on revenue that that impact on revenue is because of natural momentum so you've effectively grown 200% since the beginning of 2020 you've all pretty much doubled your headcount so that therefore begs the question in terms of applying your own medicine, because we're going to go into the whole conversation around veterans and newbies and scaling up and so on. But how have you found having a coaching tool like Refract within the business has helped you to be able to manage that scale without the wheels coming off? So, yeah, without feeling like we are promoting our, our own you know, our own medicine, drinking our own champagne. The Refract has been, as a tool, a really important part of, first of all, getting that momentum. And that, you know, that momentum was hard one. I don't want to make, you know, there, there was 
lots of hard work, mistakes, learnings to get to that point at the start of, uh, of last year. Lo- you know, lots of people we're talking about, you know, as I say, we're six years old as a business. There is four or five years of frustrations and feeling like it should be growing faster and wondering what the hell we're not doing right and uh, um and you know lots of frustrations and yeah and 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 still today we're you know looking at all the things that should be better that we need to uh, improve that we need to learn from none of that has uh, has, has, has changed but refract is a massive part of that you know we you know, we we coach our teams to uh, uh to to death, whether that is self-coaching, whether that is, you know, we're coaching obviously calls of conversations. We are tactic, we have a, a tactical uh, uh, coaching session one to one and a call coaching session one to one with uh, with each of our reps each week. We have a team coaching uh, uh, session uh, each week, self-coaching, peer coaching, mentors. It is at the very heart of what we do. And definitely the momentum that we got was very much in part due to that, you know, that obviously that coaching culture and what proportion of your sales team hit quota every month so i think across sdrs and uh and aes on an average month it would be 80 odd percent but you know i i guess the question is our quotas have been increasing dramatically and the questions right now is how much more dramatically do they need to uh, increase right now? Because as I say, there, there is this natural momentum, there is this change in the, in the market. And we're starting to you know, wonder how much quotas and targets are glass ceilings for us and you know, our kind of self-imposed limiting beliefs because you know striving to achieve a target in a you know in a world around us that is is you know we're so fortunate is changing so favorably is has the potential of holding us back it's really interesting i was speaking to a friend of mine recently and uh, he's a manager of a team of sdrs and they've got five or six hundred accounts each that they're all um, personally responsible for What's been really interesting is chatting to him about how he can segment those accounts and identify the ones that have the greatest growth potential. One of my favorite go-to laws is Price's Law. Price's Law states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. So if you have 600 accounts, roughly 25, 26 are the square root. And those are the ones that you should be able to identify very early on in a new hire's tenure so that they can identify that where they are going to invest a lot of time winning those accounts and then prioritizing where they spend their time. But a lot of people don't spend the preparation time, the planning time. They just give them a list and say, call. And that, to me, is just an act of um, self-sabotage and madness. Uh, your thoughts? I think, yeah, I think this is where we can be driven by KPIs and and those KPIs can just drive all of the wrong behaviours as much as they can obviously encourage uh, uh, you know, us to do some of the right things. So, you know, when your KPIs are about Having uh, you know this number of conversations, having this number of uh, of opportunities, having this average customer value, you know what whatever those things may be, but you're driven by those KPIs, then you're working to a target rather than working to an opportunity and a market opportunity, and being 
coming back to, to, to a line that you said earlier, being truly customer-centric as well and seeking out those customers who you can be most successful with, not just on, on day one, but you know, obviously in terms of growing together as well. Again, this is really interesting because a key question that I'm, or two questions I'm asking myself. The first one is, um, is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose? What do you mean by great in sales? The traditional new business hire is hired for being hyper-competitive, will to win, money-motivated, self-starter. I don't have a problem with the self-starter piece. I think people should take personal ownership and responsibility. But a will to win, by definition, means someone must lose. And whilst I'm not a tree hugger by any stretch of imagination, I can um, imagine. I think that you cannot be truly customer centric if you are always trying to win when you are selling to the customer. You need to know when sometimes it's the right thing to do to take a backseat or refer on a competitor or tell them, you know, we're not the right company for you or the timing is wrong. People who are genuinely motivated by money come in two forms. Either they come from extreme poverty and they're trying to get away from that, but their emphasis, their, their perspective can be skewed um, so that they're so fixated on hitting the KPI, hitting the quota, getting the money in, that they sell when perhaps they shouldn't. But the people who are genuinely motivated by money, as opposed to understanding that money is a benchmark of how much other people value what you're doing and gives you options and choices to create the life that you want, the experiences that you want, the security you want for you and your family, but you're genuinely motivated by money. In my experience, those people are not people that I want to do business with. And I'm just curious if that's your what you'd say to that i would agree with um you know with with almost all of that because i think that we have this this concept of being money driven and this will to win as being desirable qualities in in our sales teams and in our our sales uh, recruits but being customer centric is yeah you know, is not something that people tend to put on a job description when they look for a, you know for a, for a salesperson that's the role of customer success that's not the role of sales would be the, uh, the the kind of pushback that you would get from that but you have to create to be truly successful certainly i believe you have to create customer centric organizations and customer centric organizations start from the from, from the sales uh, uh, teams i think part of the problem and i know we could you know, spend forever talking about this is that we have as an industry a perception of sales, perception of what it's like to work in, in sales. Still, most of us fall into sales somewhere along the, the, the way. And those that, and I'm going to use this in inverted commas, succeed in sales tend to either be those that are the students of sales and, and are invested in, in learning and developing themselves and, uh, and being successful, or you can get a long way in sales with a level of confidence, a level of drive, and those things alone get you so far in sales, you know, not necessarily in the organizations that we represent or the organizations that we work with, um, but they... They do get you so far in sales. People can, you know, 
you know can can go some way to to, to being successful um just with those attributes alone and that's where you know this whole perception of you know of, of, of confidence of and there's just such a fine line between confidence and overconfidence it is so easy to to, to step over that 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 line well one of the blogs that, that i wrote recently was was around and i'm not going to be able to say this right illusory superiority no one knows that we edited that three times before i got it right today so uh, yeah we're, we'll keep that between us so illusory i'm not, see i'm i'm trying to do it again i shouldn't have done i should have just kept it once. yeah so <laughs> you were doing so well oh yes illusory superiority is where people believe they are better than they are so you know when you yeah. ask <laughs> Lots of scientific studies that have you know, demonstrated this. When you ask people, are they above average at, uh, at driving? 91% of us think we're above average at driving. Mm-hmm. This is you know, the perfect illustration of uh, uh, illusory superiority. There are 9% who are really bad then. Well, you know, or just realists or, uh, you know, or, or a little bit more uh, uh, pragmatism. The point is, is that you know, illusory superiority, believing that we are better than we are, believing that we are above average at what we do, believing perhaps that um, all the reasons for us not being successful were not down to self, but they were down to uh, you know everything around us. It's you know it's our product's fault, it's our pricing's fault, it's our manager's fault, it's not our own fault. Yeah, you know, it's definitely something that you see within uh, sales, and you see that you know, that stereotypical salesperson that level of confidence that level of drive can also lean itself very much into those that perhaps can have illusory superiority well i think that's paralleled that people being blighted by misguided confidence is paralleled in management i can't quite remember the source but i remember reading recently a study where 74 percent of managers surveyed believed that they were giving coaching to their people, whereas only 17% of the salespeople in their teams believed they were receiving coaching. So there is this huge disconnect between reality and perception. We also have this other problem that I know really pisses you off, which is senior leadership saying, oh, I've hired veterans. They don't need training. They don't need coaching. Yes, they bloody do. So let's just deal with, uh, let's put a nail in that one's coffin. Veterans need coaching. Experienced people need coaching. Otherwise, what you end up with is salespeople who have one year's experience multiplied by the number of years they have been in sales, 10, 20, 30 years. They don't have 30 years experience. They've got one year's experience 30 times over. And you would not go to a heart surgeon who hadn't read up on the latest stuff on heart surgery and was equipped appropriately unless you wanted to have mortality rates from 30 years ago. Why is it okay for sales operations to be run in a half-assed, slipshod manner in the way that they are? And why is it that so many sales, uh, so many business leaders treat sales like it's not a profession? I think when we hear and we do hear um, that our sales team are too experienced or, or are experienced and don't need don't need coaching, don't need developing, don't need in our world to refract. It said that one line says so much about the entire organization because you know you 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 now create this mental picture of um of 
plodding salespeople who presumably aren't um, chomping at the bit and banging the door for training and coaching. Presumably, you know, they're, 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 it, there isn't that noise coming from, from the team. A leadership team who are just content with the status quo or more likely afraid of the reaction of their, in inverted commas, experienced sales team by upsetting the status quo. And you just know that that's a, you know, it's a stale organization, a stale uh, sales uh, team within the, within the organization. It's just, you know, that one line alone is just, uh, is, is so compelling. The question that I often like to ask when someone does put, say something like that is just say, you know, it sounds like you've got a great team who are obviously all successful. Would you say that they've peaked? And I do find that, you know, that question is uh, which, you know, rather than actually disagreeing and pushing back on their experienced uh, team, just does kind of create some reaction because, you know, no one likes to say they've peaked, but yet they don't need coaching. That's an uncomfortable disconnect for me. There's a lovely quote from Kevin Dorsey. Everyone practices. The best do it on purpose. The rest do it on prospects. You do not want your salespeople practicing when you've just spent the price of a small mortgage to build your list. Your marketing has spent time, money, and resource turning leads into marketing qualified leads. They've been thrown over the fence to your sales team. Your sales qualified leads cost hundreds, if not thousands of pounds to develop. Then when a salesperson meets a prospect, pre-COVID, you could easily sink 300 to 1,000 pounds per visit to a customer. And if it was a four-legged sales call and they were taking a technical pre-sales person or a manager on, you could easily double that. So you're getting into the thousands or several of thousands of pounds per meeting. Then practicing in front of the prospect, that is an act of gross misconduct. As you know, Marks, we're, we're fortunate enough to have a million sales calls each month that are analyzed in the fact. I listen to a lot of sales conversations from a lot of different organizations. I have never, ever heard a sales conversation that is not littered with, with coaching moments. My sales conversations are absolutely littered with, with uh, uh, coaching, coaching moments, which, by the way, my team, including my SDRs, my AEs, and my sales leaders, coach my calls because, you know, again, that is an important part of creating a coaching culture is, is just getting everyone comfortable and realizing that, you know, coaching moments and coaching opportunities are not bad things they're great things that you know they they are opportunities but but this this is where that friction i think you know comes in is that people think you know well you know my team when they say my team are experienced they don't what they don't need coaching that's not what that's not really what they mean at all what yeah. they mean is that either a don't believe that their team will be receptive to the coaching that you would that you would give them that that's not the same thing as them being too you know too experienced or or b you that there is this culture where you know people don't want to receive and don't want to hear things that might help them improve and might help them uh, be better and obviously you know coaching is about 
celebrating the great moments, sharing those great moments, but but also, you know, really focusing or cool coaching, really focusing on those moments where just phrasing it slightly differently, missing that active listening moment, missing the great question rather than the good question that would have really unlocked another level of uh, pain, value, opportunity, whatever it might be. As I say, my calls are littered with moments like that because every calls are littered with moments like that. And, um, and, and either you go on in blissful ignorance or there is a commitment to coaching and uh, you try and remedy that. There's a proverb, if you're green, you grow, if you're ripe, you rot. And there's an awful lot of rotten fruit out there in the sales environment. And what's interesting, because uh, when I had my training business, we had exactly the same pushback. You know, I've got veterans, they don't need training. Find me one person on the planet who cannot improve. And it just, uh, they just do not exist. I fundamentally believe that every employee deserves to perform at their peak. And in order to do that, they need to improve incrementally. And it's a constant journey. However, you have people whose egos are brittle and they are afraid of being found out. Because that's the other thing that those senior leaders are telling you when they say we've got veterans, they don't need coaching. They're afraid of rocking the boat because the pushback is, oh, this is another big brother. It's not if it's introduced for the right reasons and you've earned your sales team's trust. Each intervention should deliver a measurable improvement, a measurable return for the effort and the investment. And there should be visible improvement because that builds confidence. It allows the individual to take ownership of those improvements. And I think one of the things I love about Refract, and I'm working with a company called Mobile Practice, is the ability for a salesperson to self-evaluate. If you self-evaluate, and then you practice the improvements, you'll practice it multiple times and you become hyper aware so that when that situation comes up again, not only has your behavior changed, but you've owned it because you're putting it into the context that is relevant, it's real life, and it allows you to enhance the learning. One of the things that has frustrated me for years is that 70-80% of the people that you train will drop the training inside of two weeks. I interviewed Mike Bosworth a couple of days ago, and it was really interesting. He observed this too. And often, the main reason was something he calls discovery resistance. And discovery resistance is, oh, you're asking me a question way too soon. I don't trust you enough yet. Mm-hmm. Now, the top 20% have a natural way of creating that comfort with the customer or with the prospect that allows them to ask those difficult, insightful questions. But without the coaching, without the self-evaluation, without listening to their own calls and hearing where the customer or the prospect suddenly sounds like you've hit a jarring moment, won't give you the clue as to what you need to do in order to modify that. Listening to other best practice calls allows you to hear and see what the best performers are doing so that you get that permission to do good discovery. And he came up with a truly brilliant and elegantly simple solution, which is, Kevin, do you mind if I tell you a story about another CEO in a SaaS company 
who was struggling to achieve scale and growth. Now, most people will say yes at that point because they've got peer curiosity. Now you tell them a 30 to 60 second hero's journey story where the customer is the hero. And then you finish with enough about me. Let's talk about you. Now you have peer envy. Yeah. And that opens the discovery conversation. But unless you're listening, unless you're seeing what the best in the world are doing, you're going to struggle. Loads to unpack there. So first of all, I think self-coaching, that ability for for self-reflection, to listen to your own conversations and find yourself those moments where you could do things differently, you miss parts of uh, conversations. Our team will never, ever go onto a demo without replaying their discovery uh, uh, conversation. And so many times it's just like, you know, something that you missed, the nuance of how that was said, that when you're in the moment and you're, you know, you're, you're thinking, uh, you're obviously working in the moment to make sure that your next question is the right question, that you're going to ask that in the right way, plus having those active listening skills at the same time, and then, you know, reflecting on things that you could have, uh, you know, that you could have done differently. You mentioned that word big brother, I'm going to go and look in our conversations how many times we, we might hear big brother in, said by a, by a prospect. I just can't imagine there being any other profession in the world where actually observing someone doing the job they're paid to do would be considered big brother. Well, what's really important to understand is the evidence on this is absolutely empirical. 70% of learning happens on the job post-training. If you spent money on training and you act, because again, this is where I have a real issue with the training industry and buyers of training, because what they measure is smile sheets at the end and they measure retention. I don't give a damn about how happy they were and I really don't care how much they remember I want to know how much they implement so that the needle moves in the right direction. I get the outcome that I intended from the training. Um, but most training organizations are basically set up to do the delivery. So do a little bit of entertainment. And the idea is that you get a little bit of a morale boost. But if 80% of the people that you paid to go on the training stop implementing all of it within two weeks, what on God's earth are you doing? What? I mean, if you put engineers on that type of training course, 80% of them didn't implement it. There'd be a lot of people dying from bridges that collapsed. But apparently it's okay in sales. So what advice would you give to senior leadership when they are about to embark on hiring and training salespeople in order to ensure that they get the outcome that they intended from the investment? As you said there, it is about what happens post-training. It is about you know, being able to see as an individual whether that training is being uh, uh, implemented, being able to share the best examples of where that training is being implemented by going back and, you know, who, who knew training plus coaching? As you say, you've got that whole forgetting curve of uh, you, you go on training, you have that, that, that spike and that, that moment of uh, learning but it all gets forgotten. And what actually happens in the on-the-job performance is, is where actually real learning uh, happens, where obviously uh, that, that uh, uh, impact on performance is really occurring. But this then raises yet again the ugly spectre of managers who are incapable 
of coaching, if they have a tool like Refract or mobile practice or whatever, there is an element that needs to be built into this where they understand how to coach. Because I think what most managers consider to be coaching is turning up, beating their chest and saying, come on, Kev, see how a real man does it. And that is not coaching. That's the no, other- uh, You touched on uh, some stats earlier about what managers consider they do in terms of coaching and what reps feel they get in terms of coaching are poles apart. And some of the reasons for that is, is exactly as you, you say here is, you know, what, what is coaching in a manager's mind is not necessarily coaching in the, in a rep's mind. Um, probably the worst, probably the worst example that we see of that time and time again is the pipeline review. And the and the pipeline review is coaching for the manager, is absolutely not coaching for the for, for the rep. But in saying how much time they spend coaching, I can almost guarantee in 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 so many organisations, pipeline reviews are counted as that time. You know, it's 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 one to one. I'm sat here with you. We're going through your pipeline. I'm giving you maybe the odd idea and uh, uh, instruction, and I'm coaching you. That's Kevin, it's way worse than that because often they do pipeline review as a team. So you've got 10 people in a room listening to uh, nine people listening to one person live from this work of fiction, also known as a forecast. So every minute that goes by, 10 man minutes are lost, and they do not count the cost of bad management. One of these days, I'm going to put together a calculator. I'd um, I'd love to have a chat with you about that, actually, because I'm just embarking on another really important project, which is around designing the sales manager's apprenticeship. And for them to understand the cost of piss-poor management and management by abdication, management through traditional bad practices. So it, it just strikes me that sales has evolved so many bad traditions. And when I had my office, my favorite poster was a photograph of the bull run in Pamplona. So hundreds of very pissed men dressed in white with red sashes being chased by angry bulls. And the headline reads, tradition, just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. I think, you know, to come back to that glass ceiling conversation, too few people in leadership and management are asking themselves really basic questions. Why do we do it this way? You know, you might have heard the story of holding the horses, where there was a, a chap in the army uh, had been given the uh, objective of trying to speed up artillery firing. And it turned out that the reason they were uh, taking so long about firing shells was that this, um, one of the soldiers had to march back 12 paces, turn around, stand to attention, and hold his hand up to hold the reins of an imaginary horse. Now, there are an awful lot of imaginary horses in sales where we think that doing more is better. We see this all the time, where managers say, you've got to do more calls. Instead of asking, what can we do to make our calls more effective? Based on the research from Connect and Sell, And this is an important measure that no one that I've ever come across ever measures, which is dial to advancement. So 
the dial rate in COVID, on average, based on 40 million cold calls that Connect and Sell are doing a year, is 1 to 33 dials to effectives, and 1 to 46 if you're calling senior execs in IT. Of those effectives, only 1 in 14 advances to a first meeting. But I don't care about the number of first meetings. I want to know that the salesperson was relevant enough to be invited back to the second meeting. Now, that conversion rate is 0.03%. Anyone who is running their business on those kind of metrics, frankly, is incompetent. Now, there are a lot of yours and my clients, so we don't want to offend them too much. That's down to ignorance. They just don't know any better. But when you implement coaching, self-evaluation, when you implement peer-to-peer learning, what kind of improvements are you able to see over what period of time? So I think, first of all, diving into, this is the beauty of the category that we're in, this conversation intelligence. It opens up this whole world of opportunity. You talked about the one in 33, the one in 14. Having that showreel, being able to play that showreel of what I want to understand all of those, I want to hear all of the first conversations that led to successful outcomes. And I want to understand what happens in those conversations that perhaps gives me the earliest hints that this is going to be successful. And how can that change who we prospect, the questions that we ask, the things that we try and unlock uh, early on and try and understand what leads to success so that you can change those metrics through understanding what you know what happens in conversations and make it easier to find more of those type of people and easier to uncover the pains and challenges that you can solve by asking better questions uh, earlier on in the, uh, in the in the conversation well i think there's something that goes hand in hand with asking better questions which is deeper and more empathic listening and I'm really curious to learn how your experience, because obviously you're being coached as well. I'm really keen to understand how your experience has evolved uh, in terms of your ability to listen more effectively, more empathically. So active listening is definitely one of the things that comes out from that, both that self-reflection and being coached, because you know, uh, I think you change the emphasis of like listening for certain certain words certainly the emphasis of certain words that that perhaps says more than the words alone that maybe gives those hints that there's something more here we need to go deeper here we need to ask more about this we need to understand more about this to 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 truly understand if this is going to be a compelling problem if this is going to be a problem or a challenge that we can uh, that that we can solve i think that self-reflection and then that ability as i say for for others listening and coaching your, your calls starts to train your mind a little bit differently because it's a really tough skill. Active listening is a really tough skill when, when you are concentrating so much on a complex conversation where you know that you can't afford shitty questions. You know that if you ask your next shitty question, you're going to lose five minutes of discovery and the needle's not going to move at all. So, you know, how do you ensure you, you, you get all that? I think that one of the things that, that I've definitely changed and I've definitely learned is, is just to ask shorter, more succinct questions. So like many, and we hear this all the time, I would ask, I'd have asked multiple choice questions. 
So Marcus, you know, is, is it this or is it this or you know, perhaps this? And guess what happens in, in people answering multi-choice questions? They give you one of your, uh, your answers. Or you try and justify your question by suggesting what an, a suitable answer might be. So, you know, Marcus, you're, you're, you know, I, I understand I'm performing at the moment. Is it because you know, perhaps the hiring that's been happening or something different? You know, you're, you're giving suggestive answers rather than just short, impactful questions. That's definitely something that, uh, that's changed for me. He says while giving a long-winded answer. <laughs> I didn't like to say. One of the other things that I learned the hard way is always listen to the end of the customer's response then pause and what's really powerful about that is two things first of all you are not thinking about your next question while they're answering which means that your attention is a hundred percent on them and attention is a currency you pay attention it's an investment and the problem is that if you're thinking about your next question while they are still talking Chances are the golden nugget that comes at the end is the thing that you miss. You also miss the nuance. You miss their language, the speed, the pace, the tone, the emphasis, the volume. You miss the linguistic structures. You also miss the observation of their body language. Now, we've all moved into a world of virtual selling. And I think the smarter ones have realized that breathing someone else's air is not a superpower. But what I think this latest trend towards virtual selling is uh, doing is it's forcing the best to really become great observers, not only paying attention to what is being said and how it's being said, but also being able to pick up on the nuance of the customer's facial features, the little micro expressions, the emotion that leaks out when you ask questions. And you can only do that if you're really paying attention. And I think the conversational analytics side is really important. But as a coach, you coach what you see. So I think what's really key as well is for managers to spend time observing, not only listening to the recording, but observing how the salesperson comports themselves in the sale and looking at what's going on in the customer's physiology. And I think far too few managers have any awareness of any of that. And they're just focused on the words. So again, digging into a few things you said there, like so starting with that, that silence at the end, but there's another thing that happens again, see this time and time again, is that when you get that, silence at the end of a prospect telling you something something critical as well as having that time to to, to think digest and uh, consider all that nuance is so many times the prospect goes again they feel the silence that you know there's this moment of silence they've told you this you know this this amazing thing you stay quiet and guess what they tell you even more and what do they tell you it is the, it's the nuggets, you know, that's when the nuggets come out because, you know, this is the, this is the things that are deeply ingrained in their mind. So, yeah, that power of, uh, uh, of silence is, uh, you know, has, has multiple uh, benefits and, uh, you know, that is, that is definitely, uh, um, that is definitely one. But I agree, you know, we're, we're, I think you know, as a profession, we are still learning with virtual selling. You know, we're, you know, we're, and it is perhaps only those 
top performers who are, are really already in that space where they're appreciating how much there is to get out of those expressions. But as you say, it's, it's just, you know, it is just, it's the tones, it's the enthusiasms, it's the exact words chosen, which can mean so much. And it's not only managers that need to, to listen to this, you've now got the ability for entire organizations to hear the words of prospects, the emotions of prospects, the enthusiasm or otherwise of, of prospects, that it's so easy for a whole organization to, to, to now have an, uh, an understand. Unless, of course, Marcus, you consider it too big, brother. Well, this then raises the, the final question I want to raise before we start wrapping up, which is how often are marketing, product development, leadership actually involved in listening to those calls so they hear the unvarnished, unfiltered feedback and lessons from customers? So. I think this is, you know, one of the the hidden benefits of the of the category of uh, of conversation intelligence because, you know, obviously everyone has the ability to record and capture calls. That's great, but you know, what what the marketing teams, what the product teams really care about? Well, you know, I want to I want to hear when these competitors are being discussed. I want to hear when people are talking about these features. I want to hear the enthusiasm or otherwise that comes from a conversation about X, Y, and Z. And it is all there. And you can, you know, be, being able to create that showreel of giving product teams, marketing teams, literally just a few minutes to listen to multiple customers or prospects using their words, their enthusiasm, and being able to have that true voice of customer, voice of prospect is just something that just didn't exist before. But I do think we're just at the start of that revolution because, you know, even in, in truth amongst our customers, it, it will be a, a portion that are really getting the marketing and product and other teams involved in, the, uh, in, in unlocking that. So I still think we've all got a long way to go there. Well, it's another huge application is around customer success and customer service you're still speaking to customers. There's a company called Authentics run by Amy Brown, just breathtakingly effective. And what's really fascinating is when they take those audio montages of customers raving about how great the service is and ones who are really pissed off, the boards sit there with their jaws on the floor because they had no idea. They just didn't understand. And in doing this, what we end up with is a far more rapid product development cycle, if you're listening to the customers who are saying the bad things, um, the ones who are unhappy can increase your, the speed of your product development cycle by sixfold. Yeah. Why would yeah. you not? This is where we we now have this ability to go beyond just data alone. It's not like you know, X percent of our customers said this or thought this. It's coming back to that, listening to the nuance, the enthusiasm, the reactions, the expressions which can tell you so much as, you know, as a product team, as a marketing team, as an engineering team about really understanding your prospects, your customers, what is going to delight them, what's going to solve their problems, why their problems are so compelling and helping a whole organization understand who are we serving, who are we helping, how are we helping them, how can we do better at doing that? Excellent. Kevin, look, we've come to the top of the hour, sadly. I could talk to you for hours. Tell me this, you've got a golden ticket and you can go back and advise the idiot Kevin age 23. What one choice bit of advice would you give him that would have probably saved him years of suffering and misery? 
whilst obviously I think you know anyone has to go through their mistakes and learning that that's you know and 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 you, and you can't get there without that. It would be without doubt get a mentor, get a mentor, keep getting mentor, keep changing that 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 mentor. I did try and start my own business when I was twenty three, and it didn't work out. And when I look back now, I think even that business which didn't work out could have worked out and perhaps would have worked out if I'd had a, a mentor. And that almost goes for kind of yeah anything that that, that that I've achieved in my career or we've achieved in our, our, our careers just would have been accelerated so much more by having great mentor. I know you've talked about on some of your podcasts about, you know, actually how easy it is to get a mentor is yeah. you know, how easy it is to, but you know, it's, it's so I, I think that that is perhaps the, the hidden gem I'd tell my 23 year old self. Absolutely. And again, ask yourself who, if you have a problem, don't try and solve it yourself. Ask who has already solved this problem. Whose history is my future? And go to the source. You can save yourself a shed load of time by doing that. But very few people have the vulnerability or the courage to do that. And it does take a little bit of humility to say, you know, Kevin, I'm struggling with this problem. I'm pretty sure you can help me. Would you mind? And most people, in my experience, are very happy to do so. I have six on the go at the moment. Again, it's no, there is no shame in asking for help. That's how we've dominated as a species. Okay, so what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? I think the thing that I'm wrestling with most is just unprecedented change. We've got this layer upon layer of change going on at the moment, the, the changes that have happened in the world, the momentum that we've had in our business, the being acquired, the growing a team, the being more um, remote, being more hybrid, going through just this unprecedented levels of uh, change and trying to imagine that future, but without creating you know, I touched on earlier those those glass ceilings, which are, I think we've we've definitely got. One of the things that we're really struggling with, and it'd be interesting to perhaps get your perspective uh, here, Marcus, is that we feel we really succeeded by having very tight ideal customer profiles and knowing exactly who we could be successful for and who we could be successful with. The changes in the world are making a far bigger audience. So, you know, that that would often be inside sales or SaaS teams where we knew, you know, those conversations and that revenue being won and lost was where we could win win or lose. But the whole kind of virtual selling and that we're all now, we're all in, in inside sales. It's just, you know, through uh, virtual selling and, uh, and video conferences has massively exploded the audience that we can help solve those same challenges and be successful for but how do we do that without saying well our audience is everyone that's definitely something we're struggling with a little bit at the moment that we feel like we've been successful by having focus now we're imagining something bigger but trying to still maintain that focus okay i do have a solution but it's a difficult one which is relinquishing control and it's going through partners who has a really strong position within those market segments and go out and recruit a handful of special forces partners who have a great network, a great customer base in that space, and then refocus your attention on training those partners to sell your stuff and everything else in their portfolio, knowing that they might even sell competitors' products, 
but find those special forces partners and invest really heavily in recruiting the right channel managers. And that's actually quite difficult because channel management is such a difficult role to do well. But that if you want to scale and cover off all those markets without, and scaling is growing without taking on additional costs and work for the founder. So if, if you can do that through partners, that would be one uh, perfectly viable way. And the other uh, way is going through a distribution channel where um, you have two-tier distribution. So you have your special forces partners, probably no more than a dozen. And then the rest is done through a distributor and they pick up the ones and twos and the small deals. But that, that's the subject of a much longer conversation. But I would certainly urge you to look at that. And the other thing is maybe the law of sacrifice, which is just become a specialist in a particular field and say no to the other stuff so that you can accelerate your trajectory. I remember listening to Jay McBain at a conference in, I think it was 2018, and he said that uh, the companies that were scaling the fastest were the ones who were becoming hyper-specialized. So instead of being the managed service provider to healthcare, they were the MSP to walk-in clinics of up to 50 doctors in Southeast Chicago. But they're two extremes. The channel option is the harder one, and the specialization one is the most uncomfortable because it's sacrificing all of that opportunity. But again, it, it really depends. If you can dominate a particular space, then you can pivot 10, 15 degrees either way when the time is right. But it's learning how to say no to stuff that is really difficult. Let me ask you one quick question, uh, Marcus, before, before we wrap up that hopefully will resonate with the audience as well. You've obviously got a lot of experience working with, uh, with channels, seeing that the, the opportunities and pitfalls. What, what do you see as where people get channel wrong being the, the primary reason that you see that that happens? There are two key reasons. One, you see channel as a get out of sales free card. It is not. It's the hardest sales job there is. And secondly, you do not set yourself up as a good partner first. So before you do anything, look in the mirror. Are you ready to be a good partner? Are you willing to relinquish control? Are you ready to invest time, money, and resource in helping those partners be incredibly successful? Glenn Robertson talks about this as well. Don't talk about MDF, Marketing Development Fund. Okay, talk about partner development fund. When you invest in a partner, help them spend that marketing budget on marketing their business, not refract. Yeah, yeah. And again, it requires a huge leap of faith. And if you have investors and a, a CFO, they're going to be saying, why the hell are we spending all this money training them or marketing their business? Okay, well, you're doing it because it's the right thing to do. But you start by looking in the mirror. If, if you are not a good partner, if you do not care about your partner's success before your own, if you are not partner-centric, if you don't have the systems and processes in place, if you're not willing to go to bat for your partners, if your objective is to hit your revenue target before they hit their revenue target, ain't going to work. It's going to turn to shit. And I would naturally say read Making Channel Sales Work. But that, that's a blueprint. We know it works because we've got dozens and dozens of companies that are growing 80% a quarter plus off the back of that. Now, yeah. to manage that kind of scale 
without the wheels and wings coming off is really difficult. And so you have to do the planning beforehand. You've got to design your channel five years down the road, three years down the road, two years, one year, six months, three months. And you've got to make sure that you've got a strong pipeline of prospective new hires who have a proper onboarding process and you train them to recruit only special forces partners and do a proper onboarding process with them. So, yeah, I mean, that's a huge conversation. But if you do that well, then you can grow thousands of percent. And, you know, a really good example of this is UiPath. 100,000% growth in seven years. Yeah. Wow. It's insane. Yeah. And they're still growing. That's, that's absolute gold, that, uh, Marcus, and, uh, and that, yeah, that's very timely, really resonates, and hopefully for the uh, um, some of the listeners, I'm sure that's as valuable uh, uh, for them as it is for me. That's, uh, that's brilliant. Thank you. So, Kevin, what are you reading, watching, listening to at the moment that you really rate? What am I reading? A couple of books that I've got on the go at the moment. I'm just starting a book here, actually, which is uh, Rory Sutherland. Oh, fabulous uh, book. Yeah, I, I think yeah that that human mind and how people make uh, decisions, judgments, just fascinates uh, me. And obviously, it's got so many parallels with uh, you know being successful in there uh, in sales. Um, I am rereading uh, obviously awesome by April Dunford um, around product positioning. That's a, a little bit of a bible, and uh, yeah, as. It's really valuable rereading that because you know there's, as I mentioned before, so much is changing. Just making sure that we, you know, we we really understand our, our position in the uh, in the world, where we win and how and why we win. And then, yeah, other than that, yeah, I do tend to just find myself just going down lots of rabbit holes of you know spending hours from LinkedIn, jumping into content and uh, you know and, and 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 Twitter and just just losing myself in the worlds of, uh, of LinkedIn and Twitter and jumping into uh, to, to things like that, including, obviously, Marcus, your own podcast. So, uh, yeah, you can thank come you back. <laughs> yeah, no, I was listening to a couple over the weekend, actually. So uh, it's really good. Hopefully this sits somewhere uh, somewhere on the list as, uh, um, as, uh, as also being valuable. Anyone who's interested is they read Fred Copestake's book, Selling with Partnering Skills. And if anyone wants it, I'll put it on the, uh, the blurb. But the partnering quotient test tells you how well suited you are to selling with partners as well. And that's really worth a read. I would also read Win-Win Selling by Doug Brown. That's a Mm -hmm. a great book. And uh, Going Global on a Shoestring by Hans-Peter Beck is fabulous. And Zach Selch's book, Global Sales, I think it's called, is really worth a read. I'm quickly jotting those... uh... Who's down? That's brilliant. Excellent. Kevin, how can people get hold of you? They can drop me an email, Kevin at refract.ai. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Kevin, LinkedIn slash Kevin uh, Beals, B-E-A-L-E-S. Happy to, to hear from anyone. If anyone listening to this wants one of their calls coached, happy to take a call and provide uh, an external perspective uh, as long as that's not too big, brother. <laughs> Excellent. Kevin Beals, thank you. Thanks, Marcus. Loved it. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation useful and insightful, please like, comment, share, and do subscribe. And if you feel inclined, please do give the podcast a review on Apple or Google Podcasts. 
Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a tech company in the 10 to 50 million mark, and your goal is to grow your business and achieve real, sustainable, and profitable hypergrowth with highly engaged and highly productive employees throughout the entire revenue operations, marketing, sales, customer success, account growth, then please do get in touch. If you want clients who stick with you year after year, then let's schedule time for a brief conversation. My email is marcus at laughs-laughs.com. And you can direct message me on LinkedIn. And if you are pissed off to the back teeth with how sales has been hijacked by the shysters and snake oil salespeople and by gamblers and speculators pretending to be investors, derailing the culture of your business, then please join Sales A Force for Good. We're a global community committed to taking back sales from those people and focusing on creating conditions of buyer safety and being pro-customer. So you can use the hashtags SAFFG, hashtag pro customer, and hashtag buyer safety to track down any content. And we're creating a learning platform where all of what we learn will be made available for free forever to any of the members of the community. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.